You are now listening to the November 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Story of Kings, Sermon, and Praying for the Next Generation. First, let's begin with Story of Kings. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston from Story of Kings. Today we will share the story of Ahaziah, the eighth king of Israel. He was the son of one of the most evil kings in Israel, Ahab, and his wicked wife, Jezebel. As he was growing up, he observed how his father and mother were being confronted by the prophets of the Lord. He had to have ample opportunities to watch how God frustrated the evil and wicked plans of his parents, and by doing so, how God demonstrated he was the true God. However, instead of learning from his parents' mistakes, Ahaziah chose to stick with the ill-gotten ways of his parents. He reigned in Israel for only two years. His record can be found in 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 51 to 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 18 The Bible assesses Ahaziah in 1 Kings chapter 22 verses 52 and 53 He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam the son of Nebat who caused Israel to sin So he served Baal and worshiped him and provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger, according to all that his father had done. The Bible tells us that Ahaziah followed the way of his father and the way of his mother. As we mentioned earlier, Ahaziah's father, Ahab, was a king who worshipped idols and did evil against God. God sent many prophets to Ahab to deliver his messages and help him see God's love. Ahab witnessed on multiple occasions how God was the only and true God. But Ahab did not turn his heart and did not come before God till the bitter end. He lived on his greed and his own will and worshipped the idol his wife Jezebel brought, thus willingly walking in the path of destruction. As we shared before, Jezebel was regarded as the most wicked woman in the Bible. She corrupted and brought Israel to the path of destruction. She was very evil, and she was also very shrewd with deceit and trickery. Ahaziah's father Ahab and his mother Jezebel worshipped Baal and built temples and altars in Israel. They also built and worshipped Asherah, wife of Baal. They even imported other foreign idols to worship in public ceremonies. Instead of observing the misdeeds of his parents and coming to his own senses, Ahaziah blindly walked the exact same path his father and mother walked. The Bible tells us that Ahaziah repeated all the wicked things Ahab did and caused God to anger. 2 Kings chapter 1 records Ahaziah's evil doings by not listening to God during his reign. One day, Ahaziah was resting in his upper chamber. The upper chamber is a room on the rooftop where there was a lattice on the wall opening that blocked the sun and allowed cool air to breeze in. While he was standing in the upper chamber, he accidentally fell through the lattice and injured himself severely. He became concerned about his health and his life. So he sent his servants to Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, to ask if he would recover from the injury. But then God intervened. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel? that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up. 
but you shall surely die. This is from 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 in parts. Elijah then met Ahaziah's servants on the road and delivered a message from God. The servants turned around and returned to their king to deliver the message. They communicated to Ahaziah what they were told. Of course, Ahaziah did not appreciate the message and he wanted to know exactly who would dare say such an ominous thing to the king's servants. Ahaziah pressed them and asked to describe the man who had uttered these words to them. Then the servants told Ahaziah that the man who told them to deliver the message was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound to his loins. Ahaziah immediately recognized that the man was Elijah. Of course, Ahaziah had met Elijah while his parents were being confronted by him. Then Ahaziah dispatched soldiers to arrest Elijah. He sent a captain with his fifty fighting men to Elijah. The captain of fifty told Elijah, O man of God, the king says, Come down to the captain of fifty who ordered Elijah to submit to the king's orders and come down, Elijah responded, If he was a man of God, fire would come down from heaven and consume him and his fifty fighting men. Then fire indeed came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty soldiers. Ahaziah sent another captain of fifty and his fifty soldiers to Elijah. This captain of fifty said to Elijah, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. In original language, this demand had a stronger implication than the first captain of fifty in ordering Elijah to submit to the king's order immediately. Nonetheless, just like the last time, Elijah said that if he was a man of God, fire would come down from the heaven and consume him and his fifty soldiers. Then fire indeed came down again from heaven and consumed him and his fifty soldiers. Ahaziah sent another captain of fifty and his fifty fighting men for the third time to Elijah. The third captain of fifty was different from the first two. He went to Elijah asking for mercy. Here are the words from 2 Kings Chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. So he again sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. When the third captain of fifty went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The first two captains of fifty who served Ahaziah despised God and despised God's prophet. But the third captain of fifty went to Elijah, humbling himself, and asked for mercy in the fear of God and of the prophet of God. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah not to be afraid of Ahaziah and to go with them. Elijah obeyed and went down to Ahaziah to tell him God's word that Ahaziah would not leave the bed he was in and would surely die. The Bible records in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 17 that Ahaziah died according to the word of God which Elijah had spoken. Though Ahaziah witnessed two judgments by fire from God, Ahaziah's heart remained hard and stubborn. Like his parents, he was wicked and did not turn to God. Just like his father, Ahaziah went against God, despised God's prophets, and worshipped idols. He willingly walked in the path of destruction. His short two-year reign as a king came to an abrupt end. We will continue with the story of kings next time. Have a blessed week.
sun I believe in the risen one I believe I overcome By the power of His blood Amen Covered in sin and shame I heard mercy call my Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is a thinkable mission. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill. Are you getting in the Christmas mood? Um, as Yes, it is awesome. It's, the weather is chilly. It, things are getting decorated. Just out of curiosity, I posted on my Facebook, how many of you are behind in your Christmas decorations? Because I am. Thank you. Thank you. For all of you that put up your tree three weeks early and put it on Facebook, shame on you. You made us all feel very, very bad. Well, as we enter the month of December, we turn our attention to the one event that transformed, literally transformed world history as we know it. It is the defining event in world history. And of course, that is the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in a small town called Bethlehem, the city of bread. Isn't it ironic that the bread from heaven was to be born in the city of bread? And my hope for you over the next couple of weeks is that your heart is encouraged as we look at this event. Well, I want to begin this morning by uh, talking about that man right there, Winston Churchill. Uh, many of you know who he is. Um, he, during World War II, came up with what was called Operation Unthinkable. And I don't know if you are even familiar with this. But the plan was ordered by Prime Minister Winston Churchill at the end of World War II and was to be developed by the British Armed Forces. And basically what Operation Unthinkable was, it was to be a surprise attack on the Soviet forces stationed in Germany in order to drive them out of Europe after World War II. As you know, both the Allied forces and the Russian forces 
merged or converged on Germany to destroy the Nazi war machine. And that they did. But once the Nazis were destroyed, you had communist forces and allied forces face to face in the middle of Germany. So Churchill came up with Operation Unthinkable, and it was to attack the Soviets before they even knew what was going on. It was truly a bold move on the part of Winston Churchill because it would have been the start of World War III. World War III almost started hours after the end of World War II. Well, as history unfolded, and as you know, the Allies ended up not attacking the Russians. And Germany was ultimately divided into East and West Germany. And the Berlin Wall for decades stood dividing a nation and literally a planet, the Iron Curtain, if you will. This lasted, of course, until Gorbachev came into power. He instituted perestroika in Russia. Ronald Reagan challenged him to tear down that wall, and that wall came down. The unthinkable happened. Operation Unthinkable didn't happen, and then the unthinkable happened. That wall eventually came down. Operation Unthinkable, it was truly unthinkable. It was crazy. World War III on the heels of World War II. Let me ask you a question this morning. Have you ever come up with an idea that people called crazy? I bet you have. Some of you may have had it this morning, right? Your spouse is thinking, you're crazy. You're crazy. But I bet you at least once in your life, you came up with an idea and those around you, friends and family alike, said to you, you're crazy. That can't happen. An idea that people said couldn't happen or shouldn't happen originated in your brain. <laughs> We've all been there. We've all had that. There was a time, of course, when sending a man to the moon was thought unthinkable, right? Operation Unthinkable. Let's put a man on the moon. Now we're talking about putting a man on Mars. Yet it happened. We put a man on the moon. Let me ask you a question this morning. What happens when God thinks the unthinkable? What happens when God comes up with his own Operation Unthinkable? An idea so over the top that even the angels in heaven marvel at it. Well, I will tell you what happens when God thinks the unthinkable. It is you end up with the Son of God being born to a virgin mother 2,000 years ago in a small Roman outpost on a mission to die for the sins of the world. This is what you end up with. When God thinks the unthinkable, this is what you end up with. By the way, I wasn't kidding when I say angels marvel at God's plan to save mankind. It's on this note that I take us to 1 Peter today. Hear the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, Peter's been writing about our salvation in Christ. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care. The prophets were dying to know about the Messiah. They were longing to look into this plan, this operation unthinkable that God had come up with to send a Messiah into the world. They wanted to know, trying to find out the times and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that were to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, but when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then it says this, even angels long to look into these things. Even angels long to look into these things. God's plan to send his own son as the Messiah is so unbelievable it's so outrageous, it's so over the top that even the angelic beings that exist in heaven long to know about the Messiah and why he was going to be sent and when he was going to be sent and the circumstances surrounding his entrance into the world. It is truly the most unbelievable operation ever instituted in the history of the world, the birth of Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago in a small Roman outpost for you and for me. How crazy is it that the God of the universe would care for you and me? This crazy, this crazy. David said this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is it? What is it about man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor, and you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Folks, the birth of Christ is truly, again, the most unthinkable operation ever enacted in the history of mankind. Think about it. Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, seen and unseen, leaving the glories of heaven to take on human flesh, being born as a baby and subjected to the perils of this world, only to be rejected by those whom he had created and ultimately crucified at the hands of wicked men. You want to talk about an unthinkable operation? That's it right there. That is it right there. That is how much God loves you and he loves me. Amen? This is the God we follow. That is Operation Unthinkable. The child in the manger is Operation Unthinkable. Winston Churchill did not come up with Operation Unthinkable. Our God did. When he, before the foundation of the world, decided to send his son into the world, born of flesh, Subjected to the perils of this world to seek and save you and me. Many of the world religions have a hard time believing that God would ever do such a thing for those whom he had created. God, first of all, doesn't have a son, according to other world religions, let alone a son that takes on human flesh. But this is the truth that you and I proclaim. That God's love is so great, his mercy is so awesome, that he would do the unthinkable by human standards. He would do the unthinkable by human standards. Human standards, God would never take on flesh, but you and I, that's exactly what we proclaim. That is exactly what you and I proclaim. As we enter this Christmas season, folks, the message that you and I proclaim to the world is a message of a Savior who came wrapped in swaddling clothes, born to a virgin, born in a manger, full of grace and mercy. God taking on human flesh and doing the most unthinkable of things, listen to this, giving his life away in service to those whom he had created. Here's the kicker though. Strap your seatbelts on. Here we go. God himself not only did the unthinkable, he now calls each of us to do the unthinkable, to give our lives away for the sake of the gospel in this generation. I said it before, I'll say it again, there is nothing accidental about your life. You were put on this planet, in this generation, born into the family that you were born into with the skills and desires and heart, all given to you by God so that you can serve him in this generation. Philippians says this, have this mind among yourselves. There it is. Have this mind among yourselves. What mind? The mind of radical servanthood in which we give our lives away, following a Messiah who did the very same thing. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Now listen to this. Here's the birth of Christ being born in the likeness of men. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Folks, in other words, as Christians, we are to have our minds set, set on one thing in this lifetime, folks, servanthood. Christ came on the most unthinkable operation in the history of the world where he came to serve those whom he had created by laying his life down for them. And he calls you and I to do the same. He calls you and I to do the same. Now listen, why is giving our lives away for the sake of the gospel so unthinkable? Because our flesh and the world wants us to do just the opposite. Our flesh wants us to be first. Our flesh wants to be served. On top of that, the world that we live in teaches us to fight for our rights, demand what is ours. This is the world we live in. You just saw it with the election that happened. It was a country and a generation of people fighting for their rights demanding that they get their leader and their way. Yet the call of the gospel is to do just the opposite. It is to yield your rights, to die to self, to set the needs, your needs aside for the sake of others. And not just some of the time, but radically in the most radical ways that you can think of. No greater love than this than when one man lays his life down for another. That's the type of servanthood that you and I are called to in Christ. Mark 10, 45, for even the son of man, for even the son of man, if anybody should have been served, it was the son of man, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many folks. The call of the Christian faith is one in which we do unthinkable things, like giving our lives away to the poor, giving our money to the less fortunate, 
living with less so that others can live with more. It's a life in which we as Christians go into hospitals and prisons and places of poverty and we give our lives away to those who need it the most. We enter this season and this season is often about families and and ourselves and what we're going to do. But the question is not what are we going to do, the question is what are we going to give? How can I give my life away in service this season? A life of radical servanthood might seem unthinkable to many, but for those of us who are following a savior that gave his life away, it makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Listen, folks, Jesus was always doing the unthinkable. He was always serving in unthinkable ways. John 13, then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. This is unthinkable, Jesus. This is completely unthinkable. Who does that? What leader washes the feet of his followers? What rabbi renounces his rights? Please tell me. Well, the answer, folks, is the type of leader who is on an unthinkable mission. Not just to serve, but to give his life as a ransom for the sins of men. And God has called you and me to do the exact same thing. Listen, folks, great leaders never ask those under them to do what they are not willing themselves to do, and God is the supreme example of this. God has called you and me to do what he himself has already done, to deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow him. In the most radical of ways in this generation, again, there is nothing accidental about your life. Do you understand that? You have been put here in this generation, in Tempe, You're sitting in Tempe, Arizona. You may not live here, but you're sitting in Tempe. You live in Arizona. You've been put here for a reason. And that reason is so that you can be a prophet to this generation. The type of prophet that speaks the truth and lays down his life or her life if necessary. Amen? This is the God you follow. This is what he's done for you and for me. Again, such a calling might be unthinkable to most But to you and me who understand the gospel, to you and me who are the recipients of this amazing grace, it makes perfect sense. It's what we live for as Christians. We live to serve. By the way, you want to know another reason that the mission that Jesus was on was so unthinkable? Because that baby in the manger came to serve and to save those who were totally undeserving. Jesus did the unthinkable for the undeserving. He did the unthinkable for the undeserving. Jesus came to save sinners, not saints. There was nothing in you and me worthy of saving. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enemies of God. And yet, even in that state, he came to pursue us. It's one thing that Jesus left the glories of heaven. He set aside the glories of heaven to take on human flesh. It's one thing to do that. It's another to do that for those that don't deserve it, right? And in case you haven't been told lately, and you need to know this, and very important theological question, is mankind born good or is he born evil? He's born evil. He's born dead in his trespasses and sins. Unlike modern humanistic thinking that says mankind is generally good, the Bible says just the opposite, right? As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to this. This is Paul writing to Timothy. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. If you're going to, you should fully accept this. And if you can't fully accept it, you're going to be struggling with what the rest of the Bible has to say. Here's the trustworthy saying. Christ came into the world to save saints? Sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. Folks, none of us have led an unblemished life. No one in here is perfect. No one would even dare admit to that. Jesus came to seek and save the most imperfect, messed up, self-centered people in all the universe, you and me. It's a great title to have, isn't it? The most imperfect, imagine introducing yourself and saying, hi, I'm Bill. I'm the most imperfect, messed up, self-centered creature in all the universe. (laughs) But God came on a rescue mission for me. That makes your life special beyond measure. To say that we're undeserving is really an understatement. The only thing that you and I are deserving of 
is God's judgment and punishment. Now here's the kicker. Jesus has called you to give your life away in radical servanthood, but not just any type of servanthood, a life in which you radically serve those you find to be undeserving. Now let's all be honest, right? We all have those people in our lives that are hard to love, right? So here's what I want you to do right now. I want you to think of that person. In some cases, it might be people, a whole group of people, but we all have them. They might be Democrats. <laughs> they might be Republicans in your case, right? They might be the immigrants crossing the border. It might be the Muslims that you see on the nightly news bombing and doing things that they shouldn't be doing. It might be those that run abortion clinics. Who is it? We all have those people that we find hard to love. It might be someone in your family or the place that you work, someone who is that black sheep. Folks, as if giving our lives away in service to others wasn't already challenging enough, you and I are to give our lives away to those people whom we tend to see as unworthy and undeserving. And you know who they are in your life. I know you're thinking about them right now. And the truth is that undeserving person in your life might be pretty undeserving. Maybe they've made a lot of bad decisions. Maybe they have big character flaws that drive you crazy. So much so that you can't even fathom their existence, right? You're like, why did God put this person on earth? Here's why. So that you can serve them. <laughs> this is the God you follow. Serve the undeserving. This is what you and I have been called to do. It doesn't get you off the hook if somebody drives you crazy or if somebody is making all the decisions that you would never make in life. We are called to serve the undeserving. We are called to love our enemies. Listen, folks, anyone can serve those who are deserving. Non-Christians do this all the time. Jesus even talked about this. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? Thank God he sent his son to die for the undeserving, you and me. Thank God that he did that. You praise his name because he did that. You were not deserving, nor was I. In the slightest, God did not look at you and see something good. He saw something in deserving judgment and punishment. And yet, what does he do? He sends his son to die for you and for me. Because Christians get this concept of undeserved love better than anyone else, we should give it better than anyone else. Now listen, this is interesting. At the end of Jesus' life, he said this. When Jesus had received the sour wine, this is him hanging on the cross. We start at the birth, and now I want to fast forward to the end of his life. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Why is that significant? Here's why. Jesus fully finished the unthinkable mission that his father had given him to do. It was finished on the cross. What was started in the manger was finished on the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus gave the very last thing he had to give, his life, for undeserving people. He even looked at those that were crucifying him and said, forgive them for they, not, they, they know not what they do. But here's the important point. Jesus stayed on course. And he resisted the temptation to make things about himself. You know when we say Jesus was tempted in every way that we were? You want to know what one of the greatest temptations I think for him was? To make things about himself. To make things about himself. I think that when Satan tempted him, and it wasn't just the one time in the desert, when he was tempted by Satan throughout his life, it was Jesus, make things about yourself. And Jesus didn't. He was there to serve to the point of laying his life down for the sake of others. He resisted the temptation to fight for his rights. He resisted the temptation to give up serving the undeserving. And I will tell you right now, folks, the greatest danger for us Christians living in the 21st century, and I believe every generation of Christians in every century in which they live have a unique temptation for which they are susceptible. And in the 21st century, I believe that the church is susceptible to self-centeredness. The greatest danger is that we are going to be tempted to give up serving those that God has put into our life. And we are going to be tempted to give into a self-centered, self-focused lifestyle with a self-centered, self-focused gospel. And the end result will be that the church looks nothing 
Well, let me say it this way. The end result is that the church will look exactly like the world. The danger for us is that we, especially as American Christians, fall back into an American consumer mentality where the only person that we are really thinking about at the end of the day is me and my pension and my retirement and my health and the things that concern me. Instead of thinking at the end of the day, have I given my life away in the fullest today? Have I given my life away to the point of laying myself down for the sake of others, especially those that I find undeserving, whether they're Democrats or Muslims or people that are pro-abortion or whoever it might be in your life? Not that I fight for my rights or I want to change, I'm going to change them and then I'll serve them. No, I will serve them radically to the point of laying down my life, even if they don't get it. And I will pray that in my radical sacrifice, in this wonderful sacrifice that I lay before God, that he will use that to speak to them. He will use that to change their life. They will look at us and see something that they don't see anywhere else in the world. A people who are not about themselves. A people who have died to self, who've taken up their cross and are following a Messiah who has done exactly the same. Jesus said this, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Folks, you want to know why there aren't a lot of laborers in the harvest? Because laboring for others requires great sacrifice, massive sacrifice, the type of sacrifice that many aren't willing to give. When you're praying this prayer, you're praying that God would change people's hearts, your heart from one in which you are accumulating and collecting and protecting to one that you are giving radically to others, regardless if anyone sees it, regardless if they ever pay you back, regardless if you find them worthy or unworthy. It doesn't matter. You lay down your life for the sake of others. The baby in that manger invites you and me to join him in the most unthinkable mission ever conceived in all of human history, to give your life away for the sake of the gospel in this generation. So I ask you this morning, are you ready to do the unthinkable? Are you ready? Are you ready to do the unthinkable this Christmas? You're going to be spending time with people, I bet, from your family or in your place of work that you don't find all that lovable. The challenge this morning is love them. Love them, serve them, give your life away. And as we enter 2017, I guarantee you, you are gonna run into a lot of people that you are gonna find hard to love, undeserving people who drive you crazy. And again, their very existence is a mystery to you, right? Serve them, give your life away for them. This is the call. You have been called to do the unthinkable in this generation. There's nothing accidental about your life. You've been put here for such a time as this. Amen? Let me pray. Father in heaven, we come before you and we sing this hallelujah chorus. We sing our praise to you. And we worship a God who did the unthinkable and laying his life down for us. And God, let us be compelled by that sacrifice to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice to you in this generation. Forgive us, Father, of the times in which we have protected ourselves and defended our rights and accumulated and protected the things that we think are ours. God, you have called us to abandon that way of thinking. God, I pray that you would transform us from the inside out. It would be, Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit in us moving us, God, to do unthinkable things this Christmas, washing people's feet, hugging the unhuggable, God, reaching out and touching the lepers and those in our society, God, who haven't been touched in a long time. In the quietness of your heart right now, I want you to bring those people in your life that you find hard to love and ask God to change your heart this morning. Just spend some time with God in private prayer. raise us up. Make us mighty prophets who speak the truth, but God, amazing servants who give our lives away. As we go from here today, God, I know that you're going to set before many of us opportunities, even today, to serve. 
God, let us take advantage of every opportunity you set before us. Let us do it knowing, God, that you see and you see, and that's good enough for us. We love you, Father. We thank you. And we pray these things in Christ's name, our Savior and the church said, amen. Amen. God bless you. listening to Unity in Christ, the English hour in our broadcast program. Here at Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries, we strive to connect our listeners to engage with a community of believers as one body under Christ. 
Since 2000, we have dedicated our lives to make disciples of all nations through radio broadcasting. We are always encouraged to hear from you. So if you have any comments or testimonies that you would like to share, please feel free to email us at askhsgm at gmail.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Heart and Soul Podcast on iTunes for weekly sermons. To learn more, visit heartandsoul.org. Following is the program Transforming Grace. Welcome to Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries programming. I'm Leslie Martin, and I'm honored to have been asked to share my book with you called Transforming Grace. Over the next few weeks, we will walk through this story that shares my heart on God's love and grace for each of our lives. Now that we have looked at the origin of shame, let's consider another type of shame. As we've already seen, there is the shame that we deal with in our own lives in how we talk to ourselves about the things that we have done, our feelings of inadequacy or fear of being exposed. I think that would be enough shame in a person's life. Unfortunately, however, we also have to deal with the shame of what others say and do to us. Perhaps you grew up in an alcoholic family. You weren't the one who drank themselves silly every weekend, came home and beat up or tried to kill one of your family members. You weren't the one to waste all the family money. You didn't do that. You didn't break every promise that was made by failing to show up at your child's high school, graduation, wedding, or other important event in their life. You didn't do that. You weren't the alcoholic. Nevertheless, what do you carry? You carry shame. From growing up in that family, and the shame that the alcoholic put on you and the rest of the family as they transferred their responsibility and blame shifted everyone else. Maybe you were the one who was molested as a child. You were not the criminal, but you've been made to feel ashamed of what was done to you. It seems like it would be enough to just feel ashamed for what we do ourselves without having the shame of what others do placed on us, doesn't it? A humorous story I once read provides a good illustration of this type of shame. Some children at a parochial school were having a hard time remembering their sins when it was time to go into the confessional. Their teachers, therefore, instructed them to write down their sins before they went in. One little second grade boy did as he was told and then went into the booth and sat down. He heard the voice behind the screen quietly ask, What do you have to confess, my son? He started to read his little list. I lied to my parents. I disobeyed my mom. I fought with my brothers and, wait a minute, this isn't even my list. Can you relate? Do you feel shamed by someone else? It's not uncommon to collect shame from others as we are around them. We wear shame lanyards of things that have been done to us, as well as the shame we feel for our own actions. The Apostle John records a poignant story of a woman who experienced both kinds of shame. Turn with me to John chapter 8, and we're going to start in verse 1. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery, and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger, Wrote on the ground. This is appalling. I'm not referring to the actions of this woman, although what she did was wrong. More shocking than her actions were those of the scribes and the Pharisees. They were supposed to be religious leaders. 
They were entrusted to be compassionate shepherds, wise leaders, and faithful teachers of the people. They were men who should have had love and compassion for all people, including this woman. They should have expended every effort to help her understand God's word and to experience his love so she wouldn't feel compelled to look for it somewhere else. Instead of helping, teaching, shepherding, guarding, guiding, leading, and protecting, they shamed her. They simply didn't care about her. She was a pawn in their game. Their goal was to set a trap for Jesus, and she was the bait. The pious religious leaders were consumed with jealousy and hatred for Christ. They would go to any lengths to discredit him, to arrest him, to bring him to trial and execution, and to divert the loyalty of the people from him. It absolutely did not matter to them who they used and abused along the way. This woman's mistake conveniently provided a perfect opportunity for them to launch their diabolical, hateful plan. The adultery must have been a setup because how else would they have happened to discover her in the very act? And I have to ask, where's the man? Adultery isn't a solitary sin. The law actually said that if a man and a woman were caught in the act of adultery, if there was the testimony of two or three reliable witnesses, then both of them were to be executed. We are told that the scribes and the Pharisees brought her to Jesus. That sounds rather tame, as though they had said to her, Come along now, we're going to take you to Jesus. That's not at all what the word means in the Greek text. The word means to take eagerly, to seize and drag someone. They knew just when to rush into that bedroom, seize her, and drag her out in public and into the temple courts. Who knows what she may have been able to grab to throw around herself as they were forcing her out of the room while they piously intoned their accusations against her. They couldn't wait to push her half-naked body in front of Jesus. Such women should be stoned, they said. The Greek word used for such women means women of this sort, this kind of woman. In other words, she's not even a normal woman. She's not someone that you should value as a person. She was one of those women, hopeless, detestable, disgusting, evil, filthy, and dirty. The self-righteous leaders utterly disdained her. Such women should be stoned according to the law. Shame on you, woman. Shame on you. Shame on you. Can you hear the accusation in their voices? Can you imagine the shame lanyards being hung around her neck? John goes on to record, But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, They began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone and the woman, where she was, in the center of the court. The law commanded the death penalty for adultery. The woman was guilty, but the self-righteous accusers that publicly dragged her out into the temple courts while loudly asserting their righteousness and her guilt were also guilty. No one has the right to point the finger at someone else. What a shameful sinner she is. What an awful man he is. What a hopeless case she is. Jesus stooped down and began writing on the ground with his finger. It's a real God thing to write with your finger. In fact, God wrote with his finger when he gave the law, didn't he? Okay, talk to me about the law, Jesus was saying in essence. I'm the one who wrote it, and he started writing on the ground. When God gave the law, he wrote it in stone. When God wrote on the ground, he wrote it in the dust. Jeremiah 17.13 has a lot to say about this. O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you will be put to shame. 
Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. This verse describes those unbelieving scribes and Pharisees, doesn't it? They didn't love Jesus. They had forsaken the true and living God and would not accept his son, the Messiah, who was right in front of them. Because they rejected the one that God sent, their names were written in the dust. Maybe it was the names of those self-righteous scribes and Pharisees that Jesus inscribed in the dust because they rejected him as the Lord, the fountain of living water. A few moments after Jesus started writing, the only one left with the woman was the only one righteous enough to throw a stone, Jesus himself. Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, sin no more. John eight ten and 11. This is so powerful. Jesus did not condemn the adulterous woman standing in front of him, and neither does God condemn us. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.11, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't drag us in front of a jeering crowd and shout, Shame on you! God will never do that to you. He doesn't condemn you. The only one who has the right to condemn you won't do it if you put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, and accept his forgiveness and the gift of salvation. I hope you enjoyed this portion of God's Transforming Grace. We'll see you next time. God bless. Fount of love, divine that flows from my Savior's bleeding side, where sinners trade their filthy rags for his righteousness applied. Mercy cleansing every stain, now rushing o'er us like a
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.